following episode contains frank depiction of sexuality. Viewer discretion is advised. Or you can treat sex as a normal part of the human condition, which it is. Your choice. Also, I wanted to mention that several images are described in this episode, which you can view at deadideas.net. To preserve the surprise, you may wish to listen first, then view, but again, it's up to you. Enjoy, everybody. Today's dead idea? Hysteria. As in, the medical condition where pretty much anything men didn't like about women's behavior could be explained by their uterus wandering around their body. That is what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who thankfully, in this day and age, does not have to see the doctor once a week for a certain special treatment. More on that later. <laughs> uh, I'm BT Newberg, but you can call me Brandon. With me once again are my co-hosts for the day, Nick. I'm awfully glad I don't have a uterus to wander up towards my throat with all the wood dust I've been inhaling. Um, apologies <laughs> if I sound stuffed up. And Nick, is the wood dust is because you are going to school for, what was it again? Uh, repairing violins and string instruments. A, a luthier, right? Yes. Yes, that's really cool. Turns out I'm not great at planing. <laughs> <sighs> well, some people are born planers and some people are not. <laughs> Seems like it could be an extra planer joke in here somehow, <laughs> okay. but... And Anna, who's hailing from the paramel elemental plane of sawdust, which is adjacent <laughs> to fog. All right, people are going to think this is a sci-fi podcast here. <laughs> we are actually a history podcast, believe it or not. Uh, okay, so let's get to our topic for today. So we're talking about the medical diagnosis of hysteria, which we now consider totally bogus but which was accepted medical theory for nearly all of Western history from the ancient Egyptians all the way up through the early 20th century. So is that history with a Y? H-Y-S-T-E-R? <laughs> it's not I don't, a really popular Michael yeah. Jackson. I don't know if we want to own that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, we're going to go through some of that history, and finally we're going to end up focusing especially on the late 19th century Belle Epoque period of France in 1893. I think I'm going to be relying on uh, Nick's French pronunciation a lot to help me through these uh, episodes. <laughs> uh, pas si mal belle époque, c'est... Ex yes, exactly. So, by the way, uh, just so we're all clear, we're not talking about mass hysteria here. Dogs and cats living together. <laughs> so uh, is that when everyone's uterus started wandering around <laughs> in a crowd? The crowd part, at least. Um, we're also not talking about the popular meaning of acting hysterical, or in other words, acting kind of crazy. Um, what we're talking about is specifically a medical diagnosis, whose number one qualifying characteristic was basically having a vagina. So, <laughs> um, Although there's interesting things that we'll get into where some doctors eventually thought that Men could be hysterical, too, so we're looking forward to that. So, male uteruses wandering all around. Uh, well, if you're Jewish, according to certain Eastern European <laughs> blood libel traditions, actually, yes. Really? Is oh, there blood libel. Okay. Blood libel. <laughs> yeah, you know, the sort of pogrom seeding story in yeah. parts of Russia and Poland that Jews would have to kidnap a young Christian boy and kill it. Oh. At Passover. Oh. Yeah, part of the reason was, the idea was that Jewish men actually menstruated oh. and needed to drink Christian blood in order to replace the blood lost from menstruation. What about Jewish oh, women God. by these strange lights? What is it just the general assumption that ladies just self-replenish blood, but if you were a guy with a uterus, you had to go and supplement? Do we have I a, guess. a vampiric uterus haver? <sighs> we, we might need to do further research on this, I suppose. For so many reasons. Oh, okay. Well, um, yes. Well, on that note... Um, a mostly dead idea, luckily, although you can still find some weird 80s textbooks from Saudi Arabia that reference it. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping that was a dead idea, but I didn't want to venture. How do we kill these ideas? <laughs> we need to have a killing idea episode, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um... Of course, what we're talking about here is naturally a profoundly patriarchal idea. Um, but it's not so much that it was just like completely made up. It was more that it was just so vague and wide-ranging in its symptoms that like you could apply it to pretty much whatever you wanted. Nearly anything that a woman 
did could be taken as a sign of it. And you could see how that could function to, you know, oppress women. In some cases, it was applied to healthy female sexual functioning that was nevertheless outside the perceived norm, including both excessive desire for sex and lack of desire for sex, interestingly. Who gets to calibrate this? I, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> or inability to orgasm through vaginal penetration, which there's just a, there's just a percentage of the population that's just like that. So in other cases, it was applied to mental disorders that we would now more characterize as conversion disorders, anxiety disorders, or PTSD, and even in its heyday in the late 19th century, when a so-called epidemic broke out in Europe, critics were already referring to it as a waste paper basket diagnosis, meaning you throw everything, you throw every symptom you can't otherwise explain into it. Sure. Yeah. Like waste basket taxa, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, so. It's still so, kind of a common thing in mental illness diagnoses. That... Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So some of the common symptoms attributed to hysteria were fainting, mm. nervousness, mm. insomnia, mm. sexual desire, fluid retention, heaviness in the abdomen, muscle spasms, shortness of breath, loss of appetite for food or sex, and, and I like this one, a tendency to cause trouble for others. So, <laughs> so aside from a few of these, it's basically somebody after too much coffee. Right. <laughs> I'm also thinking of my Victorian novels, and I really think if we're talking Bella Puck, we should be saying swooning rather than fainting. Swooning, yes. Fainting and like, how much overlap couch. is there between this and just consumption? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the thing. You is swoon, it overlaps pale. with virtually everything. Ah. You're dramatic. You cause trouble for others. Yeah. You shouldn't have novels written about you. Hmm. I also just like imagining, like, if you went to the doctor today and was like, yeah, doctor, here's what's happening, you know, and the doctor's like, well, have you been causing trouble for others? Uh, <laughs> well, kind of. Oh, all right. All right. I know what's going on. Again, how are we calibrating? You have the precisely defined borderline personality disorder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. um, okay. Some other symptoms included irritability, anxiety, sleeplessness, erotic fantasy, and vaginal lubrication. So this is starting to sound like a really weird list of medical, of like drug side effects. Now. <laughs> Do not take if yeah. your symptoms include yeah. irritability, anxiety, sleeplessness, we and vaginal lubrication. Yeah, in post we need to add like a really happy sounding uh, backtrack to this. If we do. Yeah, a lot of like yeah. visual accompanied by people buying kale and smiling at each other in slow motion. Yeah, as, as we like read the list was. of side effects. <laughs> yeah. Um, in 1880, George Beard cataloged no less than 85 possible symptoms of hysteria and called even that list incomplete. So that kind of gives you an idea of what we're dealing with here. Beard's list even included excessive drinking and thirstlessness. So yeah, pretty much anything that was you know socially disapprovable. The human condition. Yeah, the human condition if you're a woman, yeah, if you're a female. In the late 19th century, after millennia of hysteria being taken for granted, certain scientists actually started to study this condition seriously. And some even contended, uh, like I was saying before, that men could experience hysteria as well. But even then, it was still a very patriarchal diagnosis. Dr. Jean-Martin Charcot, uh, a name that we'll hear again and again in this series, believed that men could have hysteria, but he likened men to desert sand, whereas women were like fertile soil for hysteria. So, it's so succulents versus non. What are the non succulents? Everything else. Our hysteria is prickly, I think, is yeah. what the saying. It retains water, though. Well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Because of your loose, shallow roots. I, I, he's, I think he's saying, like, yeah, men could be hysteric, but women, you know. Just when would it not happen? Yeah, bitches. <laughs> right. So in in rare cases, men might succumb, but women all the time. That's what he's kind of saying. Yeah. So <clears throat> yeah. But even when hysteria wasn't inherently linked to having a uterus, which is where the word hysteria actually comes from, like from, hysterectomy. Ex yeah, exactly. Yeah, just mentioning the yep. word history so, means uterus is probably a good yep. thing to say out loud on the podcast. Yeah, that was it, my it comes, history joke. Yeah, too. exactly. Yeah. Um, the the Greek word hyster hystera yeah. 
is what, I think what it comes from. Meaning uterus. Meaning asshole thing that hurts for no good reason. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Uh, no, but, the yeah. asshole is different. Dear. They're close together. <laughs> well, but... I'm obviously paraphrasing. The Greek is different, but... <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, it was even then it was still very much a women's disease in a man's world, and that's just kind of how it was. Another interesting thing that I noted in my research was uh, the author Rachel Maines notes that there was no analogous word testerical to describe men. You know. Okay, I know what <laughs> so my, my prog band's called. <laughs> <laughs> so like this would, for example, describe men like male sports fans during the Super Bowl or something. I guess right. was her point. Yeah. Now, so this this topic, you know, it's it's like hilarious, it's titillating, it's also is it testeric? It's te it's testerical, it's <laughs> testerical, um, <laughs> but it's also haunting, right? So so many times as I was going through this research, I actually had to put down the book because it was just like oh my god, it just hurt my soul somehow because there's just so much crap that women had to go through. It's just oh. we'll get into that a little bit, mostly in the second episode of this series, but. Anyway, listeners, you've been warned. Watch um, out, he's becoming hysterical. <laughs> I feel like it. So here's how we're going to do this. Uh, we're doing part one right now, and we're going to explore the idea of hysteria and the culture and times of Belle Epoque, France, 1893, along with a little bit of history that led up to it. Uh, and next time, in part two, we're going to zoom in on the famous slash infamous Dr. Charcot and some of his hysterical quote-unquote patients and that's, like I said, that's the one that really gave me chills. So, yeah. Am I remembering correctly that he was sort of a mentor of Freud's? Yes. Yes. Freud studied with him yeah. a little bit. Yeah. For a few months, I think. Not, you know, a little bit. We're also going to focus a little more on the doctors today and the patients next time. Like the doctor's perspective today, the patient's perspective next time. So stay tuned for that next time. Okay. But today we're exploring the idea of hysteria itself. So... How did it begin? We're going all the way back to the earliest uh, recorded medical treatise. The earliest one that we found in any part of the world is from ancient Egypt, mm -hmm. um, from the Cahun papyrus, uh, Cahun gynecological papyrus, I think is what it's called, from around 1800 BCE. And it contains cases of women suffering a variety of ailments, everything from sore limbs to toothaches, which are attributed in nearly every case to discharges of the womb, terrors of the womb, deprivation of the womb, etc. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. I just have to say the words gynecological papyrus out loud. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the first track on, you know, my new prog band. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. It, it does roll off the tongue Tisteria. quite well here. <laughs> oh, the prog band's name is Tisteria? Yeah, but, right. but the album name is going to be Gynecological Terrors. All right, I'm definitely coming to the opening show for that one. You don't stand in the first row. It's going to get pretty guar fast. <laughs> <laughs> pretty guar. <laughs> Um, so here's a, a tiny little uh, verse from the Cahun Gynecological Papyrus. <clears throat> Examination of a woman who is ill from her womb wandering. You should say of it, what do you smell? If she tells you, I smell roasting, you should say of it, it is wrappings of the womb. You should treat it by fumigating her with whatever she smells as roast. The hell? <laughs> <laughs> Did you make toast, honey? Something's burning. What are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, I don't know. To me, that symptom sounds more like a concussion or yeah. something. But... Oh, this is a stroke. <laughs> also, um, one should add a little context. The fumigation that they're talking about is fumigation of the womb. Okay. That's sort of what I was figuring. Yeah. yeah. And the idea was Well, to... you're going to smell a lot more smoking stuff if you do that. It's going to yeah. it's gonna start get Smithfield the elk up in there real fast. So, so based on how this kind of played out in ensuing cultures, like ancient Greek culture, the idea seems to have been that the uterus was wandering around the body and you wanted to entice it back to its natural location with sweet scents. Hmm. So you have okay. to fumigate the womb as sort of like the honey to bait it back into its lair, kind of. So it's sort of like... Honey, I need French fries. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, exactly. you think you need French fries because your uterus desires French fries and it's hanging <laughs> up around your armpit. I'm going to burn some hot grease over your snatch to make it come back down. Yeah, right. this... I'm, I'm having some yeah. problems with this. I liked 
parts of where this was going, and now... The french fries part was good. Yes, yes. <laughs> Couldn't you just pack it with salt and... St no, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, that would kind of make you thirsty. Oh, no and, french fries. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> All right, so Stop like I... getting hysterical. <laughs> All right, so speaking of ancient Greece, this is also carried on in the Hippocratic School, um, which was the same guys that gave us the miasma theory of disease, if you followed our, our series Again, on that one. smells. Yep. Mm -hmm. I believe it was Galen who discovered the circulation of the uterus. <laughs> <laughs> the Hippocratic view is summarized by Eratius, who was writing much later around the 2nd century CE, and he says... <clears throat> In the middle of the flanks of women lies the womb, a female viscous, closely resembling an animal. <laughs> well, we saw that, I think, in, in health class in middle school. It did kind of look like a cow yeah. in those diagrams. But... Wait, do they say it resembles an animal or something I, I don't, just like an animal? I feel like maybe it's more like a gremlin, like an animal wandering around your body. Right. Well, I'm like, not going to dispute that yeah. too much. Between all the, like... <laughs> Herbals that show the little bodies of mandrakes and things. We want to see right. if you can find illuminated manuscripts of little of, curled up animal of wings. uteri. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if we need an image tumbler to. I know, right? Just with pictures. For... <laughs> All right. He continues. For it is moved of itself hither and thither in the flanks, also upwards in a direct line to below the cartilage of the thorax, and also obliquely to the right or to the left. So now it's doing the time warp. <laughs> but it's not really going all that far. I mean, it's staying basically from, like, the top of the legs through the rib cage. So That's it's not like so a huge far. circuit. Yeah. Either that to makes the... a little more sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Either to the liver or spleen. And it likewise is subject to prolapsus downwards. And in a word, it is altogether erratic. <laughs> um, it delights also in fragrant smells and advances towards them. Okay, there's what? the yeah. What? Yeah. And it has an aversion to fetid smells and flees from them. And on the whole, the womb is like an animal within an animal. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. The preferred remedy for hysterical, quote-unquote, women throughout most of Western history was, in the words of surgeon Ambroise Paré in the 16th century, that's a quote from him, uh, the preferred method was to be strongly encountered by their husbands. So like you're so Captain Kirk team. comes and grabs your elbows. Yeah, and exactly. Have to see. And it's like, yeah. oh wait, oh god, I didn't know that was you. Sorry, I hit you a bunch of times because you're growing the beard out. That kind of strong encounter. Yes. Or oh yeah, that was a euphemism. I should. I, I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. Well. Yes. So I, now I know my husbandly duty is to yeah. strongly encounter. My, my spouse. An infusion of vitamin D. Preferably with well-perfumed. <laughs> well-perfumed spouse, yes. You decant a bunch um, of high karate on your yeah. and then just like... <laughs> yeah, so I think I think that was like treatment number one and then like if that didn't work, subfumigation. But then if that if that didn't work, what do you think was the next best treatment? Any guesses? Um... They give you a nice warm pack and will sit you down, you know, put oh, you somewhere. If only. Ice cream? Ice cream and chocolate bars? <laughs> yeah. If only. People listen well, to you? The condition could be treated by a doctor via manual stimulation of the woman's sex organ. Oh, yeah, this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm not really sure if they actually distinguished the clitoris at that time because, I mean... <laughs> anatomical knowledge of, of women's women's bodies were like the dark continent of anatomy at the time. Well, so, it's not very well lit. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, this was supposed to bring the woman to a quote-unquote crisis called paroxysm, involving convulsions similar to an epileptic seizure. But note, please note, this was not orgasm. Definitely not, because orgasm is sex, and this is medicine, so it can't yes. be orgasm. It's paroxysm. It's like when you buy something that vibrates at Walgreens, and it says that it's for health reasons. Right. We'll be getting to that <laughs> shortly. It's a happy ending. <laughs> yes. This is really good yes. for your pelvic floor muscles. Yeah. So anyway, not orgasm. And this was reinforced by the common and highly patriarchal idea that only vaginal penetration by the penis was sexually gratifying for women. 
That's the only way that you could get your dollies, according to this idea. And since this treatment didn't involve penetration, it wasn't actually sexual pleasure that was happening. No, we're just shoving this vaguely phallic-shaped thing in and out of you that vibrates. Obviously, it could not have anything to do with that. Yeah, right. What's the similarity there? <laughs> I, don't, I, know, I, don't, I don't see it, do you? It's medicine, <laughs> clearly. Um, so it was this whole other process. And so anyway, um, this was a standard treatment for this so-called disease for literally thousands of years. And you have to wonder, because it certainly did make women feel better afterward, for obvious well, reasons. Probably some, yeah. Yeah. In an age where the paradigm of sex was penetration to male orgasm, you know, whether or not the woman experienced any pleasure in sex at all, so you just have to imagine how sexually frustrated a lot of women must have been, and if, they, if you go to the doctor and you feel relieved after it, that kind of feels like a treatment, <laughs> you know? I guess it depends on your doctor. Okay, you know, the doctor has good hands, I guess. You know, nice bedside manner. Yeah. Actually, it was interesting that doctors... So doctors complained frequently. You can find this in the literature. Complained frequently of how difficult it was to learn the technique how, and how many hours they spent having to do it and how tired their wrists would get. <laughs> so, going back, to the, yeah, going back to the miasma episode, would this yeah. be more of a physician thing or a surgeon thing? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. like, does the diagnosing physician do this himself or does he get an understudy to... He gets I a person I... in a bird mask to have a pointer and just yeah. like pointing while he's going in and out. It's well, like... Or use the pointer? Yeah, yeah. yeah here, I there's know. where it is. <laughs> the bird mask is necessary. <laughs> yeah. So, this so is yeah. more so, about your fantasy life than I think we needed to know, dear. What? <laughs> it's obviously the hysteria, but I'm sure if we get strongly encountered later. <laughs> yeah, so doctors complained how difficult it was to master this technique, and in 1660, Nathaniel Highmore remarked that the t technique is not unlike that game of boys in which they try to rub their stomachs with one hand and pat their heads with the other. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think it's interesting to show that that goes back to the 1600s. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that too, right? Can, can you find that in an ancient Egyptian papyrus? <laughs> right. It's just their, their arms are all like, you know, like kind of geometric and right. like square. They're like looking sideways and trying you, to pat Trace the heads. circumference of Ra upon your head and then make the solar disk upon your stomach. And if you yeah. can do these the same time. It, it was called opening the third eye and the belly eye at the same time right. or something like that. Yeah. And that's how your cog gets. Out. <laughs> right. Who left the car? All right, we'll save that for an Egyptian episode. Yeah. But so anyway, doctors would do pretty much anything they could to unburden themselves with the effort of having to do this treatment. A lot of times they would shift it to a midwife, have them do it. Um, but the other thing that they would do is they would turn to technology. Yes. So we're going to be getting steampunk in this episode, just to oh, warn you. Oh, <laughs> I don't want to think about a steampunk dildo. Yeah. So but many be, gears. But it's not totally industrial area that things really get interesting. All manner of devices were invented to help doctors make women come faster and easier. So, Please, paroxysm faster and easier. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. Excuse, thank you this for correcting medicine, me. Yeah. Excuse me. Excuse me. So, uh, okay, so here's the point where now I'm going to pull out my iPhone here, and I'm going to bring up uh, an album of pictures, and uh, Nick and Anna, I would like you to just uh, flip through this a little bit, and for the listeners, would you please describe uh, some of the images that you're seeing? Um, well, this is, uh, wow, that's, that's, um... What the hell is that? <laughs> that looks to me like a naked woman on a chair being stabbed in the gut by a long quarter staff held by a giant. Or water? <laughs> is it a water? Yeah, it's supposed to be water. That's not a very oh, good okay. drawing of water. No. So, so wait, if it's if It's, it's really cylindrical water. Yeah, does that mean it's at like high high pressure? Kind of like a fire hose. Yes. But yeah, like... the, the caption of French pelvic douche kind of gives it away. That's not how you... No! Well, that's that's where douche is actually started. Well, yeah, that is a not. terrible idea. Yeah. I mean, douching is not a great idea to Do begin with. That's a disclaimer at the beginning idea. of this episode, by the way? Yeah. Don't try have... this at home. None of this. <laughs> I just meant for age-limited I mean, listeners. Get strongly encountered <laughs> yeah. with a consenting individual, but do not put a fire hose in your sniz. <laughs> so that one is the hydriatic massager. What is that? Um, where the table? doctor would direct a jet of water at the woman's vagina. 
Uh, um, and actually, 19th century spas were very popular for this water cure. Oh, God. Mm. That's what the water cure was? It was a one part of it. They would also massage other parts of your body, too. But I've yeah. heard... Oh, God. The water cure. That's what that is? Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm recontextualizing yep. so much of stuff. French physician Henri Scouteton writes in 1843 that precaution must be taken that the patients not go beyond the prescribed time, um, which was about four to five minutes, according to him, um, after which the patient dries herself off, refastens her corset, and returns with a brisk step to her room. Uh, more like staggers. Okay, so let's, your, your prescribed so, time is four to five minutes. You don't have to ride the whole thing 45. out. Four two five. Up to five minutes. If you have your paroxysm, you can just go back, right? You don't have to like sit out the entire four to five minutes, right? Uh, presumably. <laughs> so know. this is the nineteenth century. But anyway, that's a pretty fast paroxysm. Yeah. Damn. All right, next picture. It's a All terrible right. idea. Next picture, mm -hmm. we have a table that looks like it has a hole in it. About mm. the listener can probably guess where if there were a body laying on it. <laughs> a body. Yep. Yes. And some kind of device underneath that I'm guessing does something through the hole. Like yeah. Wait, wait. Okay, this doesn't look like water's involved. Well, it is actually involved. This is the steam-powered manipulator. <gasps> steam-powered? Yes. This is the steampunk the one. St <laughs> so is this refumigation? Like, do you have aromatic steam that... Um, well, I think the steam drives, like, an up-and-down motion of it, probably. Okay. That, that was my guess. You know, this table could also be a lot more comfortable. It looks like it's literally plywood with a hole for a manipulator. I don't know if plywood had been... Yeah. So now I want to know if plywood was I would guess that you sit on it over the hole, and then it goes, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. up and down into like, you. Your legs and your butt are going to get in the way. It's just sort of... Why am I talking about it? It's <laughs> not terribly economic. No, it's not All right, next picture. <sighs> I can tell everybody I know not to listen to this one. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, that's a seat. That's okay, a chair. Okay, so this one is called the jolting chair. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah what? this just looks like a chair with a couple of planks of plywood laying across well, it. Well, apparently the patient bounced up and down on it rhythmically. And I don't, I couldn't figure out how it worked, but it has something to do with springs and could be operated by the patient by pulling two side levers. Huh. <laughs> so you just bounce around in a chair and it jolts your uterus back into place? It jolts you up and yeah. down. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Next picture. Well. All right. What do you see? Uh, well, it says it's an it looks excitature like... uterine electrode. Yes. It looks like a dildo. <laughs> yes. Not a particularly yeah. interesting one. Well, with the wires coming off of it. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I was thinking in different terms, but yeah, the mm. wires are interesting. The rest of it's pretty straightforward. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. So this is basically a dildo-shaped electrode for ferritization, as they called it. They would It would give you a mild shock. Basically. What? Yeah. Um, and one major proponent of ferritization was none other than John Harvey Kellogg, famous for... Kellogg's breakfast cereal. Yes, yes. The inventor of Kellogg's breakfast cereal, which is actually, it was invented specifically to curb masturbation. Yeah, that's the whole road to Wellville thing, right? Right, yes. right. Because it was believed that, um, like, strongly flavored foods would be exciting in that sense. So he wanted to make oh, a so bland. Oh, so flakes were also to cure masturbation. I, I see. All, something like that. Yeah. yeah. stuff is yeah. boring as right. hell, so. Yeah, so cornflakes. Yeah, was meant to be bland so that you wouldn't get excited. So anyway, uh, and the, I think the last one, last back, picture. Back up a moment. Looks so like you were, something. You were getting your, your your uterus zapped. Yes. With a what? That, yeah. That doesn't seem very safe. <laughs> yeah, I think it was like a mild just current run through it. I don't know. I I I don't think that would feel great. Yeah. I mm? I don't think that would feel good at all. I've, I'm inclined to think that would hurt. Well, uh, well, you know what, though? You know, a lot of medical treatments didn't feel good, and that's almost kind of like it gave it street cred, almost. If it if it tasted bad, if the medicine sure, tasted, tasted bad, like or the treatment tasted, or, or was painful. Yeah. Yeah. I think all the so, quote-unquote, symptoms of hysteria, like, 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 would suddenly get considerably worse as a result of having, like, like a live battery up my snatch. <laughs> I mean, I just, I just think that this should have some sort of self-evident, no, this doesn't work things going on. Okay, the last one is my favorite. The last one looks sort of like, it's a box with a pointy end. It looks sort of like a combination between a large, clunky, oversized crayon and some kind of hand, woodworking hand tool. <laughs> a plane? Yeah. Like you're, like you're planing a yeah, violin exactly. today? <laughs> 
He said yeah, bitterly. To me, it, it looks it looks like a really primitive computer mouse. I could see that too. This, this oh. one is the Clockwork Percuteur, which was a vibrator that um, vibrated with clockwork. What? Um, and <laughs> just apparently you had to wind it up like a watch. Okay. But it was apparently underpowered to the task and would wind down before the task was done, and then you'd have to wind it up again. <laughs> that seems frustrating. Yes, it does. She said diplomatically. <laughs> yeah. That seems to be the word. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> the first actual electric vibrator, which was battery powered, was patented in the early 1880s by Joseph Mortimer Granville. And he actually insisted that it only be used to massage male skeletal muscles, believe it or not. But few people seem to have heeded his scruples about this. Statistically <laughs> speaking, somewhere out there, someone that actually uses a Hitachi magic wand for their back muscles. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it happens. But it's statistically, yes, probably pretty rare. Yes. <laughs> I also just really love that the, the vibrator was invented not for female pleasure, but specifically for male doctors to, like, not have to have cramps in their wrists. <laughs> There's patriarchy for you. Tunnel, God, just yeah. jerking off the, I mean, medicinally stimulating ladies, and now my <laughs> hands just don't work. Yeah. I mean, so, oh, man, I don't, I don't know. But there's also, like, an interesting kind of industrial aspect to it, because, I mean, before, it was like, they were like, midwife, here, you do it, right? But also, if doctors like, had to treat women frequently for this, like, weekly or whatever. I mean, that's kind of, like, going to be your bread and butter. Mm -hmm. And so you would want to do as many as you could as fast as you could. Um, Poor phrasing on my part there. But but imagine how much this would speed up your medical practice if you had something that brought someone to paroxysm much quick, more quickly and easier. Yeah. Way more effective. But it's not really crafted, then. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. So, are you saying we should start like like a DIY craft movement yes. for yeah? Well, I mean, you know, it's therapeutic and it's about wellness and it's really highly yes. specific to each patient. It's not just like you go into this clinic, you fill out a form, and then there's a machine. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, I, I, I'm definitely going to be at the next outdoor fair, maybe even Renaissance festival, with my little booth selling <laughs> selling my unicorn wands. <laughs> no, it's medicine. No. Damn it, it's medicine. And subfumigation. I think the idea is that if you even use the wand, it's too much of a one size fits all compared to you get a higher quality paroxysm with, with mm-hmm. some guy wearing his wrist to no. ashes. No? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You've definitely got. You, you must have had expertise, in other words, yeah. And then it's just reduced to the flat vibration of the machine. Right. Yeah, so I think there's a mis- Marxist critique in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> the alienation um, of hand jobs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I, uh, um, another thing, um, doctors were often very concerned about competition of another oh. sort, the other women getting treated outside the their medical practice Ooh. right so mm-hmm. so now at this point it's kind of like a quick quiz question what do all of these things have in common rail cars bicycles and sewing machines not stuff i want in my vulva <laughs> <laughs> any other guesses nick things uh-huh. that they all run on wheels well they do but they're also all things that vibrate True. Yes. And as you might expect, there were DIY treatments in the 19th century floating Sewing around. machines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, haven't you ever been close to one? The, the little, they have an actual little thing that has to go. <laughs> I know. It just seems like, sorry, you know. It shakes the table. Yeah. I actually have a, an interesting quote here about sewing machines. Um, so this was quite interesting, I found. Um, so in Rachel Maines' book, she gives this. Quote, according to Kraft Ebbing, French writer A. Coffignon thought that the power of the sewing machine was such that heterosexual women could be turned into lesbians by excessive work on them. (laughs) And what exactly did he mean by excessive work? A hint is given by the following anecdote provided in a different book by Van Driel. A certain French medical researcher named Theodore Poilet visits a military uniform factory 
and this is what he reports. Oh, God, this is going to get smutty. <laughs> Amid the uniform noise from approximately 30 sewing machines, I suddenly heard one machine going at a much higher speed than the rest. <laughs> I observed the person working on it, uh, a brunette of about 18. While automatically making trousers on the machine, her face became animated, her mouth opened slightly, her nostrils flared, and her feet began pedaling with increasing speed. Dear penthouse, I never thought it would happen to me. <laughs> Soon I saw a feverish look in her eyes, and her face went pale, her head was thrown back, her hands and feet stopped working and stretched out, a muffled cry, followed by a protracted cry, was lost in the bustle of the workplace. Oh, singer, singer. <laughs> the girl pulled out her handkerchief in order to wipe the beads of sweat from her brow, and after a shy, embarrassed glance at her workmates, she resumed her duties. The supervisor, who was acting as my guide and who had seen the direction in which I had been looking, took me over to the girl who blushed, looked down, and muttered a few incoherent words, even before the supervisor had opened her mouth and advised her to sit in the center of her chair rather than on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> as I was leaving... I heard another machine in another part of the room operating at high speed. <laughs> the supervisor smiled at me and observed that this was such a frequent occurrence that it attracted no attention. <laughs> well, clearly there weren't complete downsides in working millinery. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know. That, that anecdote is just a little too good sounding to me. I almost doubt it a little bit, but I had to include it because it's just... Oh. <laughs> I really want to see the French academic paintings that did all the Orientalism scenes of, you know, lounging voluptuously in harems. Yeah. And then Just like the version in that with people with in mid-paroxysm with sewing machines sewing in a big machines. factory. You know what sucks, though? If you sew your hand to something or if you have some sort of horrible thing happen to your finger and you're going, ah! <laughs> in the middle of a room, everybody's going to be like, oh, God, I know you could sew your hand. thumb right into the dress. Yeah. yeah, and instead of taking violence for anybody to really notice, like, wow, either you're really, really... <laughs> oh god that is blood never mind oh god <laughs> also okay like so if you do want if you 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 the, one of the many reasons women were disbarred from doing masculine things was like if you do this too much you become like a man and probably become a lesbian and then the, you have the other the other uh end of the spectrum where it's like you can do all these traditionally feminine things and that'll make you a lesbian remember right? Health, right. it's always the golden mean yes <laughs> right you just couldn't win. Excess. I mean, I think the definition of patriarchy, if you look at it in the dictionary, is just like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> the arc of history slides inevitably towards lesbianism. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we got to speed along here. So let's now zoom in to Belle Epoque, France, uh, 1893, which is actually the year that the infamous Dr. Charcot dies. Um... And uh, so this year, 1893, it's the Belle Epoque, or Beautiful Era, which is basically between the end of the Franco-Prussian War in 1871 to the start of World War I and 1914. That's the era that we're talking about. And um, it overlaps a lot with, like, Victorian era in England, but this just refers a little bit more to continental stuff. Even um, a pretty close translation to Gilded Age in America. Exactly. I mean. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we're zooming in on this for reasons that said that we said before, but also because that they thought that there was an epidemic of hysteria at this time. And I've seen estimates from anywhere between twenty-five and seventy-five percent of the female population suffering from it at this time in France. So. <laughs> who knows how they came to that conclusion but really the air was full of fetid smells mm -hmm. yeah miasma <laughs> yes. theory of yeah of hysteria <laughs> <laughs> exactly right um so this is the age of moulin rouge of art nouveau of the scramble for africa and you know high colonialism it's also the age of coca-cola with you know what in it the secret ingredient yes actual yes. cocaine in it and i think it was until like 1904 or something it had a small amount of cocaine in it for real yeah also a kind of wine brewed with cocaine i think it was called the van mariani which was repped and advertised by the pope oh uh, <laughs> yes and actually i read Pius that the 10th, i believe so maybe Leo the 13th the guy who made coca-cola was actually trying to make that because that huh. had become popular really? in france he was trying to make wine 
yes, he was trying to make Fran wine with co with <laughs> cocaine in it. Um, but his county in America just became just became a dry just county. Just dry. Okay. Yeah. So, so he he was like shit. Right. Oh sure. <laughs> it was from the south, like all the soft drinks. I wonder if that's why all the soda is from the south. I I don't know. Hey. Because most popular brands of American. Yeah. I, I soda know. or will betray our upper midwestern origins by saying pop on live broadcast right <laughs> well yeah oh gosh Nelly Coke and Dr. Pepper and 7-Up and Mountain it's all southern stuff yeah so, Pepsi's from North Carolina right yeah Yeah. alright back on task okay so um, I'm gonna speed through speed through speed through oh clothing though so imagine ourselves in 1893 okay for men we are wearing suits with bowler hats or top hats and Monocles. Oh, the monocles. Yes. <laughs> the better <laughs> to drop. Women, waistcoats with poofy shoulders in all the pictures that I saw. This yeah. kind of really poofy shoulder kind of Wasn't era. Wasn't a great era for women's dress. Yeah. From personal standpoint. Why do you think we went hysterical? Well, well, here's the thing, right? Okay, so you're also wearing overly tight-waisted corsets, although much less bustly than like the Wild West era. Right. But there was a thing at this time called the rational dress movement for women. Because apparently women at the time, the average woman was wearing up to 14 pounds of undergarments. Mm. Yeah. And so there was this movement to kind of make something a lot healthier and more sensible for women to wear. And the dr rational dress movement did manage to have that figure, um, like as in cut in half. And so that was that was pretty amazing. That's also the introduction of bloomers. Mm. And at that that was a, it was a kind of like baggy trousers. It basically looked like hammer pants yes. at the time. <laughs> um, and introduced by Amelia Jenks Bloomer. Yeah. All right. So you've got Darwin. You've got germ theory by this time. So miasma is out by this time, and for as the paradigm that's dominant in medicine. Electrification is underway. Most households don't have it yet till the early 20th century, but it's underway. Electrification of? <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, yeah. you, you would have to go to the doctor because at this time you didn't have a home way. Most people didn't have a home way to do it. Right. Um, but it wouldn't be too long before you could buy vibrators in Sears catalogs. And there's some very interesting images that you can Google pages from uh, Sears catalogs that have ads for them, right next to like I, you know ironing boards and everything else. Sure. That you need. <laughs> yeah, there was also something called railway spine as oh. a medical diagnosis, which was caused by witnessing railway accidents. What? Yep. And that affected your spine. Future dead idea. Yeah. yeah. Some suggested that the symptoms were so similar to hysteria that it should be considered one and the same. That's kind of like the PTSD side of hysteria. Sure. So, but the person who came up with railway spine as a diagnosis, John Eric Erickson, thought it could not possibly be hysteria. Why not? Because diagnosing men with hysteria was unreasonable. <laughs> so he said. <laughs> also, hypnosis is being brought back. There was such a thing as mesmerism about a century earlier than this. Yeah, ladies. Um, but it got scandalous with a lot of, it was kind of like a cult thing, surrounded by this guy Mesmer, and yeah, so it was it was very scandalous and wondering what they were doing behind closed doors and hypnotizing women into doing what you wanted and things like that. So that was out of fashion, but the doctors are starting to bring it back, particularly this Dr. Charcot. Okay, so now we come to the point in the episode where uh, you guys are given a choice, uh, a choice of role, like a perspective to take on these times, and then after that I'll give you a challenge and the challenge will be you'll pretend that you're you know in these times in these roles at one of the lectures of this Dr. Charcot in Paris who is demonstrating devices. <laughs> <laughs> demonstrating hysterical symptoms and so I am going to give you the choice of three things so you can be a neurologist okay you can be an alienist Ooh. Or you can be a magnetizer. Ooh. <laughs> Tough choice. Yeah. So, I'll go first. Which one would uh, you like? Uh, I want to be an alienist. You're going to be the alienist? Then I'm totally going for magnetizer. Magnetizer. <laughs> okay, so I'll be the neurologist then. Okay, so the alienist is what they called a uh, psychologist or a psychiatrist yeah. at the time. Hmm. And apparently it's still called that for, in like in American legal terms, for a person who evaluates the sanity of a 
what do you call it? Like a convicted criminal to whether they... Well, not convicted yet, but, but like when they're under trial. They're under... Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like the suspect, I guess. Defendant? Defendant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist, Anna. And the name seems to come from the French word for insane person, aliéné. Mm. It means like alienated or insane person. Sure. Um, and we should note that this Dr. Charcot did not consider hysterics to be insane, just suffering from a kind of disorder. So it wasn't in the same category, in his opinion. You're mentally fine. We just got to ram this up you for a bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it was sort of, I think that was one of the Freud angles too, was that was sort of the beginning of a break between psychosis and neurosis and right. things that were. Yes. Yes. It was like that. Yeah. Yeah, Hysteria was sort of, of the parent diagnosis for what sort of became a category of neurosis or just general, hmm. you're not insane, but you got problems. Yeah. So so you are the psychologist or psychiatrist of the time. Middle okay. class problems, actually. So, yeah. Nick, yes. you are the magnetizer. Mm-hmm. All right. The magnetizer is a hypnotist, but not the doctor. You're the stage hypnotist. So you you usually put on an act with like a... A person who's also on the stage with you mm-hmm. that is called the somnambulist, the person that you hypnotize. Sure. And uh, you put them under a hypnotic trance and go through the whole hypnotism act and often very closely mimicking what someone like Dr. Charcot would do as closely as possible in order to get more cred, but you're doing it for money as a show. So this is magnetizer, sort of like animal magnetism. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, the whole thing with hypnotism and all, there was this whole theory that there was kind of like this vague, fluidic-like energy that you manipulated through the body. So it was kind of like a magnetic current. They were trying to conceptualize it that way. And there was actually things done with, experiments done with magnets that supposedly manipulated hysterical symptoms, which we'll get into later, uh, in the next episode, probably. Um, You're often from the fringes of medical society, such as a failed student, a pharmacist, a dentist, or a renegade doctor, and you pretty much outrage the actual medical hypnotists, not so much because they consider you a charlatan, but because you're abusing what they consider to be a real power that has a potential for harm. Right. Yeah. So one current popular magnetizer in 1893 goes by the name Donato. <laughs> mm. So you're someone like that. And then I will I will take the role of the neurologist. The neurologist is very, very much a physical anatomical kind of thing rather right. than a psychologist. Um, so kind of like how neuroscience is today, anatomical. By this time, they had they were they were starting to diagnose like brain lesions and stuff, and they had accidents of people like Phineas yeah, Gage, Phineas Gage oh, yeah. Yeah, getting a spike through his head, and then his personality changed. And they're like, "Oh, that's interesting. Part of that part of the brain must control that part of the personality." Right. And then they started, you know, wondering like, "Okay, well, let's study the brain and the different regions of it and stuff." So that was that was a thing. And the world's current leading neurologist is Jean-Martin Charcot. And uh, he actually had fantastic success with ALS, multiple sclerosis, and Parkinson's disease. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, finding lesions in the brain that uh, could be associated with the symptoms. By studying patients who had this, when they died, then he would study their brain sure. and find out where you know there was things going wrong in the an- anatomy of their brains, or things unusual in the anatomy of their brains. And right now, he's, he's looking and looking and looking for the lesions associated with hysteria, but he just can't find any. And so he's starting to wonder, like, okay, well, maybe hysteria is a different sort of thing. Like, the thing that goes wrong with your brain that doesn't show up somewhere in the brain specifically? I don't He He doesn't quite get there, but he's, he's struggling with it. Okay, so he holds these lectures that are extremely popular in Paris. So popular that a journalist of the time half-joked that they caused traffic jams in Paris. Is this a slow year? <laughs> And so uh, you guys are all in the audience. All three of us are in the audience watching one of these lectures. Okay? So your challenge is to, from your perspective, think, what do you make of this? Okay? So here's what happens. So first he would do an academic discussion of hysteria and tell you his theory of the stages of it and everything else. But then he brings out a supposedly hysteric patient and hypnotizes her 
Uh, she would be wearing proper womanly attire, but with a feather in her hat, a prominent feather. And so we see the feather is key. Clearly, it represents some sort of. Okay, I'm not doing Freud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not quite to the to the interpretation of dreams yet, but yeah, but the hat, but the feather in the hat will become notable in a moment. Oh wow! So note that. <laughs> She's supposedly going to go through three stages, catalepsy, lethargy, and finally somnambulism. And at this point in the lecture, when he's saying this is what's going to happen, you hear a man next to you mutter something about these states never being observed outside of Charcot's hospital. Seemed to always happen conveniently in his hospital, but nowhere else. That was a common criticism. He's got localized specific hysteria. <laughs> he's got very specific hysteria. Yeah, so... Must okay. Be particular kinds of faded sense he uses. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Clearly. Okay, so I'm going to bring out some pictures here, and here I'll just have you just look at the picture and just look at the one picture and describe what's what you think is going on. Uh, okay. So there's a lady, and uh, she's got her hands above her head. She's sort of staring off blankly into space. She looks preoccupied and not exactly present. Mm-hmm. Or like she's conducting an imaginary orchestra in her head. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. Although, I think the orchestra's more up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. So this is supposed to be stage one, catalepsy. Catalepsy, yeah. Hmm. Yes. And so Charcot would shine a bright light into her eyes, bringing her into a hypnotic trance. And her eyes would remain open, but unblinking. Hmm. And, this, and then this would demonstrate the figure that you see her in, demonstrates the quote-unquote waxen figure in which her limbs hold the position that they are put in. And Charcot would like manipulate her almost like a Barbie doll. And just kind of like, look, arms up, arms down, you know, and just right. like, she stays wherever I put them. Um, uh, so... You can't do that with me, Nick. I'm not in a cataleptic <laughs> trance. Yeah, you have to shine a bright light in her eyes Women first. Women are basically frogs. Pay attention. Just put, it in my, put the light in my eyes and I'm suggestible and can't blink. <laughs> yeah, okay. So next picture. Please describe what's going on here. Lethargy. Mm-hmm. Muscular hyperexcitability, apparently. Well, that's the caption. Yes. Right? So what's going on in the picture? Is she, um... Yeah, what side... Are we viewing this from the correct angle? Because it kind of looks like she's floating in space. Yeah, it really looks like she's levitating above something. It's pretty close. It's not quite... She looks like she must be propped up on something, but she looks like... So that really doesn't happen outside of Charcot's hospital. <laughs> yeah. No. So this one, uh, this is a picture of a woman completely rigid, completely straight, like as if she's standing up, but she's horizontal to the floor, and she's propped up by a chair under her ankles and under her neck, and nothing else supporting her. Oh my wow. god. She's that rigid. Dang. So it's full on plank position. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's planking oh my with just... A chair beneath your neck and your ankle. She's got to have sick abdominal muscles. Uh, no kidding. Yeah, that would be... <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. Okay, new squad goals. So at, yeah. this, at this point, um, the Charcot closes her eyes to put her into this stage, and then her body falls limp and heavy into a chair, and then he touches a point of a pencil to her face, producing rigid muscular contractions in the area touched. And uh, this is supposed to be a, a symptom of hysteria, uh, such as a clenched hand. That's something that actual patients would sometimes come in and complain of they can't unclench their hand they have rigid muscle contractions so he's mm -hmm. manipulating so that to bring out a symptom is his point huh. um and then here he's manipulated her to be so contracted that she's that rigid she can suspend on two chairs right. I hope she's that's the idea <laughs> okay all right the last stage please describe well there's a guy pointing at what looks like a phantom snake and a woman with her swooning, hand, swooning, yes. swooning posture with her hand raised dramatically over her eyebrow and another hand in the air looking horrified by it. The snake looks cute. It does, <laughs> but also kind of fuzzy. I mean, it's outlined in a dotted line. And it's yeah. clearly not supposed to be a real snake. Right. Yeah, so this one is actually an illustration rather than a photo. The other ones were photos. No. Yeah, Wait, but... so they didn't get a picture of a spectral snake? <laughs> In the third so, stage, Charcot turns the people into line drawings. <laughs> so, this is stage three. Weird Som shit went down. In that. Now we're in an Alan Moore book. Somnambulism. And here he reopens her eyes and gazes directly into them to bring, them, bring her into the somnambulist stage. And this is characterized by suggestibility, as we are familiar with with hypnotism. Sure. 
right? And the picture here is showing causing hallucinations, which is another uh, symptom associated with hysteria at this time, causing a hallucination of a snake. So again, he's trying to say, look, I can, I can basically make these hysteric symptoms come out anytime I want using hypnosis. Right. I'm amazing. I'm, I'm an amazing doctor. Be, yeah. Yeah. Become full on planks and see yeah. artificial snakes. I can make this woman's life hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's what you see in the lecture. And then finally, for the, the sort of grand finale of the lecture, Charcot says he's now going to artificially induce a full-on hysterical attack. And this will also go through three stages. So he presses down on one of her ovaries. Ow, you dick. And then releases it, almost like hitting a button. And you wait in anticipation. Nothing seems to be happening. But then you notice the feather starts to tremble. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Then she collapses to the ground in what looks like a seizure, and Charcot is telling you what's going on. He says this is the epileptoid phase. Then her seizure turns into contortions, particularly arching her torso up violently while balancing on her head and two feet, which kind of looks like a yoga thing to me. But they thought of it as like clown court contortions, and he called it the stage of clownism. Huh. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it looks like acrobatic contortions. Sure. And finally, she sits up and makes these dramatic gestures and expressions like she's feeling ecstatic. Oh, God, this is interpretive dance. <laughs> <laughs> this has all been interpretive dance. And he says this is the passionate poses phase. Uh, and as you watch her, you really, it's hard to tell if she's looking saintly or erotic. This frankly. whole thing from the beginning. This was early Cirque du Soleil, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and you can see photos of this. You yeah, can see photos right. of this online. Just Google it. Yeah. After this, Charcot presses on her ovary once again to bring the woman out of the hysterical state, you know, a hypnotic state, hysterical attack, and then bows to the applause of the crowd. So he presses the same one. It's like once yeah. you turn it on, second time, twice. It's, sort of it's like an on-off button. It's like those, those, those bike alarms. <laughs> Hang on. So Okay, so, so alienist, right? Mm -hmm. and, and magnetizer, and then I'm the neurologist. You see this, you're in the audience. What do you make of all this? Well, as a magnetizer who's been drummed out of the medical profession for things like this, <laughs> and for dubious medical ethics, I think I want to be a renegade dentist. That's the most fun backstory. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of wondering. I mean, this diagnosis goes back to Hippocrates and beyond. Uh -huh. Theoretically, first do no harm was already a thing, I'm uh -huh. assuming. Yeah. So oh, yeah. what is really... How come this guy's able to get respect and applause for basically inducing disease on a stage for an audience. Well, okay, so that's an interesting question. I, I I'll just let it be. In fact, uh, what we could do is, how about if everybody gets to ask Dark Dr. Charcot one question? Did you say Dark Dr. Charcot? <laughs> <laughs> dark, dark Dr. Charcot. <laughs> okay, so you could ask Dr. Charcot that question. I think what he would say is that I'm not inducing disease. I am inducing the symptom showing that, that it is an anatomical thing that can be brought out and also treated. You know, I am demonstrating how it's kind of like how um, a psychiatrist of today can... Um, give you a certain medication and produce anxiety and a different medication and take it away. Nevertheless, deliberately giving someone medication to produce anxiety would be pretty dodgily ethical for a contemporary <laughs> yeah, psychiatrist. I am not, what, I am definitely not condoning or defending. I total, I'm on the exact same wavelength as you are, but I think that's what he would say. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I would want to know about the case history of the woman you were doing all of this to. Uh-huh. She's obviously suggestible, but can you prove that it's in a way that hysteria interfaces with, or is she just an exceptionally mobile, suggestible person and, you know, with weird rigidity? I mean, is is this really hysteria you're describing? Because these are really specific, strange symptoms. Yes. He would definitely say yes, and probably with a be very insulted. Well, um, I mean, but all the critics in the audience would be asking the exact same question of him, even at the time. So, more to the point, if this is the mass epidemic of hysteria where 50 to 75% of the women of Paris were undergoing these symptoms, right. would he claim that 
50 to 75 percent of all women could just plank on two chairs or suddenly so. see fake snakes yeah, I, I would be all about that abdominal core strength and hallucinatory snakes i'm down well this is a kind of an interesting part of charcot and we're going to get into the answer to your question a whole lot more in the next episode so i'll save that part but with charcot you start to get toward a more scientific study of hysteria i don't think charcot himself would have agreed that that many women of the populace was experiencing hysteria. Um, and also, I think he would disagree that a lot of the symptoms that we heard before actually counted as hysteria. He was really starting so, to focus in on the things that we would now class as anxiety disorders or conversion disorders or PTSD. And so he was having female patients who would have like serious symptoms. Like they would literally have hallucinations. They would literally have parts of their body go completely rigid and they couldn't unclench them. And then he was trying to study that. So he would show you the case studies and look, all these things that I've written down. However, the methodology of the time was not as, it wouldn't qualify as up to snuff for today. So there was a lot of what you, I forget the term for it. There's a term for something that's induced by the interaction between the patient and the doctor, a symptom that's created by it. Yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of that sneaking into the methodology of the sure. time. Yeah. Even according to classical psychoanalysis, yeah. some of that's necessary. You have to have transference and fall in love with your doctor to make the treatment work, so mm -hmm. on and so forth. Yeah, in the in the Freudian view, yeah. which yeah, there's there's a whole other. I don't even get me started on that. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, that's yeah, that's what it would be. And for me, as the neurologist seeing this, I would probably think. That Charcot was, I would probably have like a raging hard on for Charcot because he's the world's leading neurologist at the time. And I would probably just eat up whatever he told me, basically. So my question would probably be some real softball question to him that would just be like, oh, could, could you explain a little further? Like the, I, I would probably want to know what the real difference is between medical somnambulism and like the stage magnetizer. I want to, as a stage magnetizer, I want to know that too, because this looks like the same stuff I do. Yeah. But, just, I don't get to cause traffic jams. Yeah. Well, you do. You just have to be really careful about it. Yeah. Also, I should add, just, just in closing, that by Charcot's time, I really didn't get a very clear idea how many doctors were still doing the manual stimulation thing that we dwelt on for so long. I know at least some because you definitely saw the, the ads for um, the home vibrators this time and even later, but Charcot didn't seem to be going that route. Uh, and I think most serious doctors at the time didn't really think your uterus wandered around your body anymore. I think they thought it was more of a, a brain disorder by that point. And he was searching for you know how you really would treat it. So there's something to be, to be given to his credit. There. I guess it helps that there's been a history of human dissection for a few centuries now. Like, yes, listen. I think that's really what, what, even what really did it. Yeah. Well, Speaking two. of which, um, the last thing... see where everything is, and it's like, probably that doesn't move. Yes, yes, exactly. So the last thing we should talk about is, how did this dead idea go extinct? So the end of, his, of hysteria. So Charcot's time was really the, the last great heyday of this idea and hung on to look for a while after him. But So he dies in 1893 and immediately the scientific community starts to dismantle his theories and a lot of his students just like basically turn on him and start criticizing him right away. Including your guy. Uh, the, fake, the fake neurologist. Oh, yeah, me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, I never believed in him. <laughs> I never swooned at his feet. <laughs> that never happened after that one lecture. Uh, Freud formulates his psychoanalysis, which kind of becomes the more the dominant paradigm, no longer looking for brain lesions and things like that to explain this, but now something more... It, the causes were to be found more for him in past experiences and the memories and traumas of that rather than specific like areas of the brain that are starting to grow in a wonky way. Right. But yeah. I think, I know he pretty explicitly said someday there'll be the right kind of tools to be able to find all that stuff okay. in the brain. Just we're not there and we can talk about the past experiences. So that's what I'm going to focus on. Right. So that, that pretty much like starts to take the stage and hysteria starts to go away 
And another thing that Rachel Maines, I've mentioned her a lot, her book is called The Technology of Orgasm. It's pretty interesting. I would give it a read if I was you guys. Really? Um, and she says that in the 1920s, vibrators begin to appear in films. What? Uh-huh. What kind of films? And at this point, she speculates that the illusion that they were purely a medical tool could no longer be maintained. So it was that kind of uh, film that it's they were appearing in. dressed up as a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then um, they went underground, vibrators did, until the 1960s. And by that time, they were just marketed straightforwardly as sex aids. Yeah. So, yeah. Meanwhile... All the symptoms that were previously classed under hysteria later got classed as different things that we've been talking about, like anxiety or PTSD or conversion disorder, things like that. I think the final nail in the coffin was 1952 when the American Psychiatric Association published the first Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM. Um, that great big like Bible of the psychologists that they use to diagnose people. Which, are they working on the fifth edition now? Or I don't the know. Six already? I, mean, I know it's the DSM-4 about... A little more than 10 years ago when I was in college. Maybe five? I'm not sure. It's five or six. Yeah. So not that further along from 1952. So anyway, they declined to use the term hysteria in 1952 when they did that. So yeah. So that was kind of the last, yeah, that was the, the, the nail in the coffin for it. So uh, that's it for our episode this time. Uh, so thanks, Nick and Anna, for being with us once again. Thank you. For being on the show. Um, everybody, be sure to join us next time for part two. We're going to explore from the perspective more of the patients in Charcot's hospital next time, the patients who are diagnosed with hysteria. Fun. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. I want to thank you all for your continued support. We have a new portrait up, David Sheely as a Teutonic Ritter Brooder which is a kind of knight of the Teutonic Order. You can see that on our supporters page at deadideas.net. And we'd like to remind you all that we will soon be moving the portraits to a Patreon model, but you can still get a portrait for free in exchange for an honest review. So review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, or wherever, and then email us at deadideaspod at gmail.com with your choice of time period and culture and a photo we can work from. Also, we have a big announcement. We here at Dead Ideas have taken on a huge challenge. We are planning a fantastic holiday gift for you all, a monster-length, epic series for the new year that will go deeper and longer than we've ever done before. Now, I'm not going to say any more details than that right now, but I will say that we are really excited. All right, see you next week, everybody. Mm -hmm.